Welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, brought to you once a week by the Maternity and Midwifery Forum. This podcast is supported by Matflix, video streaming from maternity experts. All your CPD needs made easy. If you need to get your revalidation done or have a student project to complete, Matflix is the one-stop shop. Welcome everybody to this third this third session of the second series of Maternity and Midwifery Hour. Welcome everybody. My name's Sue MacDonald. I'm the curator, happy curator of the Maternity and Midwifery Festivals and these hours. And tonight I'm joined by the great Professor Jim Thornton, side by side. Great, great. Um, now, as some many of you will know, these sessions were designed to really provide an opportunity for continuing professional development for midwives, for student midwives, and for people who are interested in maternity services, um, really to access during the COVID um, crisis. Uh, and also, we've, we've kind of carried on through the life of COVID, and it, it's Obviously, for some people, that's becoming very live and very difficult at the moment. But we're trying to make sure that you've got access to good materials and a really current awareness. And so huge thanks to Matflix and the video streaming from Maternity Experts. This is a fantastic resource for those of you who are needing CPD, who are needing revalidation resources. This is your place to come. Now, we've got an update this evening on where we are with COVID-19 with Professor Thornton. And we're having a bit of a focus on where we are at this point, because it's six months since the lockdown and then on lockdown and in some places re-lockdown. And we're particularly looking at the newborn and obviously mothers and pregnancy and childbirth. Now, we usually start off and I'm putting... Jim on the spot here. We usually start with a little moment of the week or maybe a moment of the summer that you'd like to share with us. This is just to get us all in the mood for thinking about things. Oh, the moment of the summer. You have just yes. sprung that on me. Oh, but, I have. <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you my moment of the summer because in lockdown, I've been like all of you, uh, sitting at home rather a lot and wondering what mm -hmm. to do. And one of the projects that I took on as my lockdown project was that I would identify every spot I could on the River Trent near where I live, where it was possible to go wild swimming, i.e. swimming in the river. Uh, wow. And I found about 10 of them and I swam in all of them. And I'm now uh, swimming in some of the lakes and things. And I've had a glorious summer uh, on my non-work lockdown days, going off and having wow. a wild swim in the river. So you've got the healthiness of wild swimming and being a little bit out there. A little bit out there. And it's a little yeah. bit dangerous swimming in the river. There's all <laughs> sorts of troubles and that sort of thing. But uh, we're in the middle of COVID. I think I can take a few risks. <laughs> right. OK, well, good, good on you. I, I should think the temperature's just getting a bit chillier now. Yes, it is yeah. a little cold now. Yes, I think <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till the spring now for the next one. <laughs> I'd be with you on that. That's great. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to spring that on you, but we like to do that just to keep you on your toes. Exactly. Um, and now before we start the session, I always just say a big thank you and a feeling of solidarity to all of those 
who are in the health service, maternity service, looking after people, both well people and people who uh, have got COVID and obviously people who've been affected personally by the epidemic and pandemic. Um, and thank you to everybody, actually, that keeps the whole world going at this time from the people in the health service, to even to the refuse collectors, to the people in the shops, to the people running the transport. You're fantastic, thank you. Everything keeps going in spite of everything. So that, that's just a little stop there. And I've also got from the news, this is like being at the news desk, and just to remind people, it's still Black History Month, and it's that's a real time to celebrate and honor the contribution of our Black Britons have made throughout our history. I was watching something on TV last night about um, people identifying bits of history where Black Britons were there, which I think has been really neglected. So it's really good to have this opportunity to think differently about our history. We've got a bit bound up in our own, just very um, white centric actually. So it's good to look at other people's histories and what they've been up to. There's a link for those of you who want to access some more information. I've got a whole resource sheet which has got links to this and all the things we're going to be talking about tonight. So do use it uh, wisely there. It's also Breast Cancer Awareness Month and there's been lots on Twitter about keeping up to date with that and checking yourself. And also, interestingly, for men to check themselves as well, because what many people don't realize is men can get breast cancer too. And I think that's important for those of you who've got men in your lives, you need to look after them as well as yourselves. We've still got COVID restrictions in parts of the North and Northwestern Wales, and, and we just send greetings and good wishes to everybody. Keep patient with it, keep your masks at the ready. I thought it might be a, a nice thing to do and I, I might um, raise this at the next festival to think about masks as a real design and fashion statement. I know there are people in our world that don't approve of masks, don't think they work. I'm sure Jim is going to mention masks. I can't imagine he won't. Um, but I think we might just raise that in the future. I'm just parking that in people's minds. And also next week, it's Baby Loss Awareness Week. And I'm going to talk a little bit of that at the, the end of the session. Uh, and this week, it's been the RCM conference online. And for, I'm sure that many of you, UK midwives especially, but also all over the world have been accessing the RCM conference. There's been some fantastic sessions. We had Fran McConville this morning and she highlighted, which I put on the iPhone, or the phone, other, other brands are available, the um, WHO uh, COVID app. It's called WHO Academy COVID-19. It's available on from the App Store, and it's apparently really fantastic. I haven't played with it much yet. I've downloaded it, haven't played with it much. But apparently, as new information and practice comes in that it's as a concern to midwives and student midwives, and I assume all people in maternity services, um, it updates. So I'm going to check on whether that's as, as good as, as Fran was saying, because that seems to me really helpful to those of us who are very busy trying to juggle all this amazing amount of information and 
quite conflicting facts that seem to be coming. And again, I know Jim's going to really address that this evening. And um, so that's on the news today. So if you haven't accessed the RCM conference, I must say this to you, if you haven't accessed the RCM conferences yet and you are an RCM member, do go in and register. It's free. There's lots of, of um, items of interest. You can meet Jill Walton, who's the chief executive and all the, the people who work there and really get to know what's happening in midwifery. Really fantastic. So that's homework for today. But without further ado, I'm going to move to our uh, main event for this evening. And I'm so pleased to be able to introduce Professor Jim Thornton, who's a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology at the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, University of Nottingham. He qualified in Leeds in 1977. He's worked in Kenya and in the UK, and he's focused very much on research and obstetrics and gynaecology and that the, the breadth of his knowledge is going to come forward very strongly. He's lectured widely. He's been editor-in-chief of prestigious European of Journal of Obstetrics, Gynecology, Reproductive Medicine, and BRBJO Obs and Gynae, and is currently an editor of the European Journal of Obs and Gynae. And many people will know him of, from his work as the chief investigator of the growth restriction intervention time, trial, and he's currently deputy director of the Nottingham Clinical Trials Unit, lead for the Trent Pregnancy and Childbirth Specialty Group and head of service. He's also a very busy tweeter and he writes a fantastic blog called the Ripe Tomato Blog, which I know he's going to share with you. It's a really good resource for you. And I would say from hearing Jim talk before, he really brings research and evidence alive. So a real fantastic speaker. I know you're going to enjoy this session. So welcome, Jim. The screen is yours. Thank you, Sue, and, and welcome, everybody. And I hear there are people from all over the world, Bangladesh mm -hmm. and uh, South America and, and India and Canada. So welcome to everybody who's uh, coming in from far away, as well as people from England. Um, before I start, I liked Sue's remark about wearing masks uh, and trying to personalize and individualize our masks. Uh, I am indeed a supporter of wearing masks. I think it is your social duty and I think it, uh, the evidence that it protects people who are near you is really quite strong now. But uh, I've personalized my own mask. I haven't dared wear it at work yet, but I'm a tremendous fan of the poet Philip Larkin. Uh, he wrote the poem, Wits and Weddings and all sorts of famous poems and lots of people in England absolutely love him. And I blog about him a lot on my blog. And uh, the Philip Larkin Appreciation Society has produced a Philip Larkin mask. And I bought one. And uh, when I go to the shops or into the supermarket, I wear it in the hope that perhaps a fellow poetry lover will come up and say hello. Um, but um, wow. so that's my individualized mask. I'm the Professor of Obs and Gynae in Nottingham, uh, home of Robin Hood. Uh, uh, um, and Nottingham is, is an interesting uh, centre with regard to COVID because we've been uh, let off fairly lightly in the first wave. We, we had our fair share of cases, but certainly much less than London or Leicester or Derby or Birmingham. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm an obstetrician. I, I was working all the way through the first wave and we saw, I think, seven pregnant women who had COVID-19 and none of them were significantly ill. Uh, they were all 
manages outpatients. I think there was one patient who was had very slight symptoms, but um, we didn't really have a problem locally. So you may say, why am I talking to you? Well, the reason I'm talking to you is that right at the beginning, um, I've been writing this blog, ripe-tomato.org, and I thought it would be a useful idea to collect the primary research on, on um, uh, COVID-19 in pregnancy. So, you know, I was cross because there seemed to be an awful lot of opinions, but there wasn't much in the way of facts. And, and so I just uh, set up on my blog uh, a list of all the original peer-reviewed papers, starting off with the first nine cases from China in the Lancet, and now it, it amounts to 256 papers or some number like that. And every day we add a couple to it. As far as I know, it's still the world's only database of COVID-19 in pregnancy research. The World Health Organization also has a database, which I think is a little lot larger than mine, but it's still not been published. So I think, you know, you know if you want to see the actual evidence that's been written, um, ripetomato.org is your is it, it's a good place to come. So please, uh, please mm. use it. And that's why I'm talking. I'm going to try. I'm very, very keen on talking about evidence and not opinion. So I, I'm very tough with people. If they ask me something and I don't know the answer, I'll just say I don't know the answer. I won't, you know, I'll try not to give you too much opinion. Now, we've changed the order that the, 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 the system this time from last time, and I've actually made a tape recording of my main presentation. It's lasts about seven or eight minutes. And the plan is that we're going to play that. Um, and then I'll come back on and I will take questions from anyone who, who asks. Uh, I think the chat is working. So feel free to just write questions into the chat. And I will be delighted to ask, you know, answer questions until you're all exhausted. Hello. I'm Jim Thornton. I'm speaking to you from Nottingham, the home of Robin Hood. And the reason that I'm uh, talking to you is that I've been keeping a register of all the primary scientific reports on COVID-19 in pregnancy since the pandemic started on my blog, ripe-tomato.org. Uh, there it is. Please visit. Um, I'm going to talk about SARS and MERS very briefly, a little bit about the epidemic in China, then I'm going to talk about some registry data, the best registries, particularly the UK registry, um, and then a few other countries where I think the registry data is less good. And then I'm going to finish with a little bit of information about the neonatal risks by how the baby was delivered, and whether it was breastfed. If we go to SARS and MERS and remember where we were back in February, uh, the experience with those two previous coronavirus epidemics in pregnancy was very bad. Three out of 12 pregnant women who got SARS died and three out of 11 who got MERS. 30% mortality. This is, it was a terrible, terrible disease. And people were very worried until the uh, first cases were on, of COVID-19 in pregnancy came out of the Lancet. Nine cases um, uh, uh, published in the paper version in March. There was no severe disease. No mothers or babies died. Every baby had, had a cesarean section. But that was a very small series. Um, but it didn't take all that long before the New England Journal reported all of the cases collected by the National Health Commission of China, um, over 100 cases, some early pregnancy problems, but not related to the disease particularly, 68 births, quite a bit of prematurity, but mostly iatrogenic, 
no babies died, no mothers died. But um, that was very reassuring, but it wasn't completely reassuring because the newspapers, I've been collecting all the information in the newspapers, and women were definitely dying of COVID-19. I've collected 231 newspaper reports of separate women with COVID-19 pregnancy, 42 of them. That's a pretty high rate, uh, had died according to the newspapers. The newspapers probably right. But these include celebrities, Italian footballers' wives, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK's fiancé, and also that's clearly biased. They're going to include more deaths, probably. So it's not a particularly good source. And one of the problems is the scientific papers are not a particularly good source. They're mostly case series, individual case reports, hospital, hospital series, uh, you know, very confusing, not representative of the general population. What we need is registry studies. And registry studies did come out. Here are the first three. Italy, 77 women, pretty severe disease. One woman had ECMO, but no one died, and the babies did fine. Netherlands, 200, again, six on intensive care. One woman died, um, but the babies seemed to do fine. And France, uh, the larger units in France, uh, big series, some seriously ill women, six on ECMO, um, uh, and some babies did die, uh, probably, on, probably of some of these most severe women. These are good data, but I'm biased. I'm from, you know, from England, and I think the best data is the UK obstetric surveillance system. It's been running for very year, many years, run by this lady, Marion Knight, and it's been, it was set up to collect data in a pandemic just exactly like this. And they had a reporter in every centre, and every single UK obstetric unit reported data. And over the first wave of the pandemic, there were 427. Um, and the, you can see the spectrum of disease. It's very similar to the people who get admitted with COVID-19 outside pregnancy. The outcomes, um, well, not that good. Five women died, 1%, um, and there were seven stillbirths. Um, I think this is probably pretty much the uh, most accurate data for a developed country of COVID-19 with good data collection. Um, that's the UK. You'll surely be interested in the United States. Well, the CDC reports huge numbers, 55 deaths out of 23,000 pregnant women with COVID-19. That's 0.2%. So that's, that's one-fifth of the UK figures. It's not very reliable. Two-thirds of the data in the CDC doesn't have the pregnancy status recorded. So there's a lot of scope for error there. Uh, the U.S. also has the COVID net tracking system, which is a sample of U.S. hospitals, and uh, it reports how many people in the pregnancy age range with COVID-19 were pregnant, it's 9%, and then how many people of the same age range who weren't, you know, in the general population were pregnant. It's also 9.9%. So that suggests that pregnancy is not, uh, pregnant women are not having any more severe disease than other uh, countries. Other big countries, Brazil has a huge number of maternal deaths, 124, but the denominator here is not pregnancies with COVID, it's pregnant women with COVID who also have acute RDS. So that's a falsely high rate that women did die. Mexico has reported the extra maternal deaths. It looked at the average of the number of maternal deaths over the preceding five years in the same period, and there were 86 extra during the pandemic. And India has just reported the COVID registry in Maharashtra state. That's the state that contains Mumbai. And there were 329 ca 21 cases, but 
but they didn't report the deaths. Oh dear, oh dear. And we know that they'd missed some because now the biggest hospital in that series has already reported three deaths and preg COVID excluded Lokmanya Tilak Hospital in Mumbai, which is the largest hospital, and that has also reported three deaths outside the trial. So unfortunately, we don't have good data yet for uh, India. What about the baby transmission risks? Well, uh, here they are. This is from my colleague, Kate Walker, who's, who's looked carefully at those pregnancies where the mo mode of delivery and the infection status was reported. And if it, here we see that if you were born vaginally, you are less, the baby is less likely to be infected, 2.7 versus 5% if they were born by caesarean. If they breastfed, they're slightly less likely to be infected than if they were formula fed. Makes perfect sense because there is anti, there'll be antibodies to COVID-19 in the breast milk. Um, and isolation status, uh, a higher rate of infection if you're isolated from the mother than if you're not. So this supports WHO and all the experts' advice. COVID is not a reason to isolate the baby from the mother, to deliver by cesarean section, or to avoid breastfeeding. In conclusion, this is a very serious condition with mortality similar to non-pregnant women of the same age, and the risk factors are about the same as, as the non-pregnant. Neonatal COVID is not too much of a problem. Infection is rare and rarely symptomatic and not increased by being born vagina breastfed or allowed contact with the mother. Thank you for listening. While this event is free on Facebook Live, on demand afterwards and as a podcast, it's not free to produce. You can support the Maternity and Midwifery Hour on Patreon now. You can sign up as a loyal supporter for as little as £3 a month or a little more to get content early and receive bonus content. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash midwiferyhour and give what you can afford. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, well, welcome back after that uh, clip, which I hope you found helpful. Um, if you have any questions, do tap them in. It doesn't matter how big or small they are. Jim is happy to answer anything. And as he said, if he doesn't know the answer, he'll say so. There won't be any bluff or any of that, that, that stuff. Um, and I know that um, on your list, your resource list, um, Jim included four really interesting papers, which I would recommend you, you have a look at. None, none of them are too difficult. None of them are, well, one of them is a bit longer than the others, but they're, they're very accessible and very interesting and very focused on birth, birth and premature, premature babies and stillbirth. And perhaps, Jim, you could highlight the sort of what you were wanting to talk about with those papers. I will, Sue. That's, that's, um, that's fine. And, uh, and thank you. I hope the message came through on that presentation. Um, I really intended there to be two messages. One is the risk of the mother dying in pregnancy is pretty serious. You know, it is somewhere around the 1% or, or, or a quarter of a percent mark. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a very high risk compared with the normal risks that you take in pregnancy. So it's very important that we take this disease seriously. But it is no greater than women of the same age who aren't pregnant. 
uh, as far as we can tell. And it's nothing like as bad as the two previous coronavirus uh, problems, SARS and MERS. So I say to everybody, you know, who asks me, um, coronavirus and COVID are, is a really very serious pandemic and it's something we should take seriously. And I'm very much against Trump and the people who are saying the whole thing is nothing. Uh, it's just a bit of flu. It's a jolly sight worse than flu. But then to people who are locking themselves down and never going out and, 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 and think the end of the world is nigh, it's not that bad. Uh, it's, a, it's a serious pandemic, but there have been pandemics that were a lot worse in history, including the one 100 years ago this, the, um, in, 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 20, in, sorry, in 1918. Um, so we need to keep a sense of proportion about COVID-19. And that was the half of my message. And then the other half was, I really want to hammer this home. There is no evidence that breastfeeding is more dangerous if you have COVID. And in fact, the evidence is probably that it's good for the baby if you breastfeed because antibodies will be passed through in the breast milk. Be careful with masks and cleaning and not coughing on the baby and that sort of thing. But breast milk is probably better than artificial. It was wrong in the early mm. Chinese studies to tell women to artificially feed. The evidence does not support that. If anything, it's the other way. The other thing that was wrong in the early Chinese studies and is still going on around the world is people saying you've got COVID-19, you have to have a cesarean section. That is simply not true. It does not alter the infection rate in the baby. If anything, it might make it a little bit higher. Uh, most babies are not infected, even if the mother is infected. The problems with babies have come if the mother is very, very ill and almost dying, then of course the baby will have troubles. But that's a different situation. In the normal course of events, COVID-19 has a low risk of infecting the baby. And there is no evidence that you should have a cesarean for that reason. You have a cesarean for other reasons. If you need to have a cesarean, that's fine. But don't have it for COVID. And then the last one is don't isolate the baby from the mother. This goes with the breastfeeding. Isolation does, you know, is bad for the baby. Babies need their mothers. They need skin to skin and they need breast milk. And there's no evidence that isolation helps. So that's the message I wanted to hammer through in the in the presentation and I'm just giving it another hammering now. And I think I think that's you've already answered uh, one. Well, you've answered sort of answered one of the questions that's come through, Jim, where uh, Jill Moncrief. Hi, Jill. Is Hello, Jill. Saying, Has the cesarean rate for women with COVID remained higher despite the evidence? Well, Jill, that's a good, good question. And it's one to which I'm going to say I don't know the answer. <laughs> I know every blooming paper. I mean, honestly, you know, if I don't know it, it's not there. And I have not read a paper that has, I just suppose I do know the answer. No, maybe I do. Maybe I do know the answer. Yes, because I read the papers. And you're right. Uh, it, when I read the papers from South America and India, I'm still reading a lot of papers where they say we have 10 cases of COVID and they were all delivered by cesarean section or nine were and there's no clear uh, obstetric indication for the cesarean now it's fair to say that a lot of the papers that i'm reading are papers from fairly early in the pandemic uh, mm. because people started writing papers i guess in march and april and it takes a long time for them to get 
published. So it's perhaps a little bit unfair to say that people haven't learned that lesson. But uh, mm. um, that's why I'm talking to you today, because I want that lesson to get out. No, that's, well, that's <laughs> if that was the only lesson of today's <laughs> talk, I would, be, I would be happy if that was the only one that got out. <laughs> Don't no. do us his own. Well, because, well, somebody else, Lola Ornato, hello, Lola, and has said, I read somewhere that some women are choosing cesareans because of partner restrictions. So that's kind of um, impacted by COVID, only not. So that's that's a good point. Yes, I, I've never come across that. Uh, as I say, I've been working all yeah. the way through the pandemic. We have restricted partners on our wards, but not restricted yeah. them in our labour wards. So you can have your partner with you in labour, but we... Uh, we have been fairly strict about partners mm. on the postnatal ward. Um, we can argue about it, but I think it's probably justified and we break the rules sometimes for special mm. cases. But I've never come across, and as I say, I've been working all the way through the pandemic and I've not come across anyone who said, I want to have a cesarean section so my partner can stay with me. Mm. Um, so it's, I think that might be an urban myth. Okay, <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Okay, well, I have a question from Judy Evans, who says, "What are thoughts? What are thoughts on herd immunity?" Read the discussions today. Mm. I think we were having a mm. slight debate about that one. Well, it's a it's a very good question. I'm not. It's fair to say I'm absolutely not an expert on this. I'm not a virologist, and I'm not even actually an epidemiologist. I'm a I'm an obstetrician and a clinical trialist. That's all I do. So I really have. Not much idea, um, but for what it's worth, it is. It, it, it's it's quite clear that if we did nothing about COVID coronavirus, herd immunity would develop. But the problem is, it would develop at the price of a lot of deaths while we got there, um, and that is why most governments, not all, have have imposed lockdowns of varying severity, and that means that. We are in a good place. Not so many people have died who otherwise would have died, but we're we're less far on in the herd immunity stage of the disease. And and mm. in the UK, we're still, I think, you know, and this is just me quoting what I read in the newspapers. I think we're still some way from herd immunity. Mm. And um, I do have some sympathy with those people who say. We're overreacting to this. I can see why young people are getting cross and their lives are being turned upside down for the sake of saving some old guys like me lives. Um, and, and I do understand that. I am an old guy, and, and so I can say it. But, uh, but, um, but there would be a, you know, it would be a pretty heavy price if we did mm. nothing about this t t disease. And I think whatever you know it just would be politically impossible we can see how mm. difficult it is you know in countries which ha which haven't locked down much that's um us and and uh, and brazil and uh, people still have to lock down even even there yeah okay well we have got we have got more questions uh so we've got um fran levy is saying thank you for the presentation it's very helpful what research questions do you think we still need answering re-covid in pregnancy 
All right. Uh, well, See, all... fab questions, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the number one is, is a vaccine. Uh, I mean, that is, you know, and quite rightly, the whole world just throwing every every possible you know anyone who is remotely capable of, of developing a vaccine i think is working on it so uh, that's the number one priority as far as the management of pregnant women with covid um the the the, uh, the issue is treatment i mean i think probably with mild disease it's probably the evidence at the moment is no treatment is the right thing uh, but as you get severe disease, there is evidence outside pregnancy that dexamethasone is effective. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes from a number of trials, but the main one is the recovery trial, which, which ran in the UK, uh, which was a trial of um, dexamethasone versus placebo and also a trial of chloroquine versus placebo. It showed that chloroquine does not work. The, those two results are safely out. Um, and then you will have seen, so dexamethasone does work in the severe, mm. in the severe cases, um, probably not in, in the mild and very early onset cases. It's, mm. it's at least theoretically plausible. The dexamethasone would make you worse in that situation because, you know, when you're well, you want your immune system to be fighting the virus. When you're very ill and needing ventilation, your immune system is fighting so hard, it's actually making things worse. And that's the point at which the steroids may work. So I certainly wouldn't want to be advising steroids to women with mild disease outside the trial. Turning to chloroquine, that's a clear answer from, from the recovery trial. And you will have seen, or maybe you haven't seen, but the recovery trial uh, published just last week, the third of its main comparisons, and that was of two antiviral agencies. It wasn't remdesivir. It was two others that are, I've forgotten their names, but they're commonly used in combination in HIV, and they're very effective in HIV. Uh, I've just forgotten their names, but you can look them up on the internet. Anyway, the answer was a clear-cut answer. It does not work. So, mm. um, so recovery has has answered three questions. It's got a few more coming through. It's it's now randomising people with severe disease to have immune plasma from patients who have recovered from COVID. And uh, I think the remdesivir arm of the recovery trial, I think that is still going on as far as I know. But I want to make one more point about recovery. It is very disappointing how few pregnant women were recruited to that trial. And even worse, how very few women, how very few pregnant women were recruited to any of the COVID trials. As I say, I've been reading them all up. And the only ones I've found so far is in that latest recovery trial, the one published uh, a couple of days ago, there were six pregnant women in, in that. But that's six out of two or three or 4,000 patients. And that is a really, really big problem. And uh, I, a lesson I would give to anybody is, is make sure your hospital is participating in the recovery trial, or if you're in the United States, there are some big trials going on, and I know there are some big trials going on in developing countries in India and, and places. Uh, find out what's going on in your country. Get yourselves signed up as a participating centre. And mm. then when the second wave comes, or if you're still in the first wave in your country, and you see a pregnant woman, offer her entry into one of these trials. 
Um, the only patient I ever saw with COVID with symptoms in Nottingham, we offered her entry into the recovery trial. Unfortunately, she declined, but at least we managed to offer it to her. Mm. Now, obviously, you can't force people to go into a trial if they don't want to, but we should at least offer it. So please, please recruit pregnant women to uh, trials of treatment. That's how we learn. Okay, that's grand. Okay. So what we've got, another question. Um, and this is from Jenny Hall. Hi, Jenny. And, and she's saying there are concerns being expressed now of the increase of postnatal depression in recent new mothers, and that's being researched. And have you got any comments on that? Um, the only thought I've got about that is the paper that came from the Oxford group, the people who look at the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths mm -hmm. and you will recall i'm having to talk from memory slightly but it's on the it's on ripe tomato and they found uh, two rather worrying things they found i think a uh, slightly more mothers who had died of covid directly than were seen in the ucos study i'm not quite sure why there was a discrepancy but it seemed to be larger numbers i think the number was about 10 or 11 and all bar one of them were clearly COVID-related deaths. One of them was uncertain. It could have been something quite coincidental, and they didn't know the details. But very alarmingly, or, or rather alarmingly, they found another six women who died during or soon after pregnancy, during the first wave of the pandemic in the UK, who had either been murdered or committed suicide. And that is serious. It, it's serious, obviously, in itself. And I'm sure many of the audience will know that in developed countries like the UK, suicide and murder and violent death is one of the leading causes of mothers dying in pregnancy due to you know, the problems of depression, postnatal de depression, abusive partners, um, all mm. this sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, even if we didn't have any COVID, this was one of the leading causes of maternal death. And it is plausible that that has been increased due to the stress of people of lockdown. So it just, you know, if you're, if you're liable to depression, I would think the worst thing you can do in the world is to be sitting alone at home in a, in a small flat. Um, and secondly, if your partner is abusive and violent, the worst thing to it for you is to be locked up in the in the flat with him um both of you you know going stir crazy and uh, mm. so i think this is a a serious issue i'm sure we're going to hear more about mm. it um, at the moment we don't know for sure whether it's increased or whether it's the same amount that would have happened without covid but it's a big issue there's quite a lot i mean there's quite a bit of um information in from women's groups and from, I know from some of these sessions we've had, um, some of midwife managers have reported that actually women have felt more supported with other women because while they're in the postnatal wards, because there's no partners, because there's nobody else around, they're actually talking to each other and sort of setting up friendships and, you know, improving breastfeeding rates and that sort of thing. So there, there are sort of other consequences that I think is quite ripe for research in the, in the future, actually. 
I think that's very, okay. very interesting, Sue. Mm. Actually, that's I hadn't heard that story, but I do find it rather plausible. Mm. Um, uh, partners can be a good thing, but they can also be not such a good thing, uh, and uh, and uh, so t- keeping them away will be bad for some people, but might mm. actually turn out to be good for others. While oh, we're on that yeah. thought, yeah. can I can I throw another thought into? Um, the frame um people sometimes ask me and perhaps perhaps the question is coming up is is um are there any benefits from covid 19 in the way that we have re- reorganized maternity services um and the answer is i don't think we know that yet it is it is too soon to say there's been a very small number of papers and in fact the four papers that Sue has circulated for you address this question, but they don't give a clear answer. And so far, they show a mixture of benefits in reduced preterm births, but it may not be true, and harms in terms of increased stillbirths. But again, it may not be true. The evidence is not very clear. But um, one benefit that I see is people just not come, you know, especially low-risk people, keeping away from hospitals. I'm, I think I can say this as an obstetrician. I think it's okay for me to say this. <laughs> Hospitals are great if you've got a really bad problem. If you've got mm. placenta previa or, 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 or a twin birth or, or, or preeclampsia or you're bleeding heavily, you know, you'd be very well advised to come into a hospital and, and someone like me, I think on balance, we mostly do more good than harm. But it's not nearly so clear cut for the lowest risk pregnant women. Now, I'm not for one moment saying people should go away and have their babies at home with no one looking after them. That's not safe either. But there is a middle ground of having babies at home or in a midwife-led unit. Mm -hmm. And there is excellent evidence that for most low-risk women, that is at least as safe as coming into hospital. And it may actually have some quite interesting benefits you have less interventions cesareans and forceps and things like that if you have the baby at home or under midwife-led care now this Mm. applies to to england and the uk i I don't think it's quite so clear-cut in pay in hospital in in countries without such a good midwifery Mm. service but we have an extremely good midwifery service in the uk we have the systems all set up to look after people at home or, or outside hospital in midwife units and the birthplace study showed that that was a safe thing to do and i'm rather hoping that covid might encourage people to have slightly more home births and encourage uh managers and things to set up more freestanding midwife led units for low risk pregnancies and i'm uh, because what's happened with covid is it's added a serious harm to the risk of pregnancy if you're in the midst of a pandemic one of the most dangerous places in the in in you know if you're in the pandemic up in manchester the the most likely place to get infected is hospital so it's a good idea to go to hospital if you really need to but if you don't you might well want to think about avoiding it and uh, my daughter is pregnant now i think i can say this i said it last time so i'll, I'll go ahead and say it she's pregnant now she's uh, I don't know, 24 weeks, something like that in her second pregnancy. She had a normal delivery first time. And I am, and so she's going to give, she's likely to have the baby, I think, in January. And it'll be right at the, 
if what we think is likely to happen does happen, she'll be right at the peak of the second wave in the UK. And I'm I'm telling her, have that baby at home. Uh, you'll be, you know, you'll, it's just as safe, might even be safer, and it will be significantly uh, lower risk of um, COVID. Her partner isn't very supportive, but that's meant for you. He's, he's, uh, he's being a bit troublesome about it all, but uh, we'll see. He might get used to the idea. You're t- tonight's hero for that, Jim. That's fantastic. Okay, so we're moving on because there's still a few questions coming in, quite a few oh, actually. Um, da, 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 da. And there's someone, who, Jacqueline Richards, is asking, there's a lot of discussion about being vaccine ready. Um, are we vaccinator ready? See, these are some cracking questions. Mm. I'm not sure about the answers, mind. I don't know that I quite understand the question. Are we vaccine ready? Well, we said we are vaccinating for ordinary winter flu this yeah, season, aren't yeah. we? It's yeah. going on in my hospital. Uh, I've not been done, but it's on my list. I must get done and I will be done in uh, a day or two. I've been done. Oh, Sue, well done. Um, I hope everybody has been done. If you haven't, let it be your task for tomorrow to go down and get yourself done. So that's important. Get get the ordinary flu. Vaccines. As far as vaccine ready, I, I think people are doing their best. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to criticise. I'm I, I think it's very tough for the people who are in charge of the vaccines and in charge of mm. managing this. Uh, I give thanks that I'm lucky to be an obstetrician. My work has carried on and all I do is carry on doing the things I know that I'm fairly good at uh, and the leave it up to the poor old politicians to try and figure out these unanswerable questions and the epidemiologists to figure out the unanswerable questions. But... Uh, I hope we're vaccine ready. I'm. I'm. Uh, when it comes, I'll. I'll be an early adopter if they'll have me. Yes, I think so. I think very wise. Okay, next question. Heather Gilchrist is saying, "Have we any recent evidence regarding increase of water births? I know we've lab- we have labouring women in water, but guidelines say to be out of water to birth. I'm not sure if that obviously meaning." With the don't COVID have anything on COVID. There hasn't, I, I, no. I really have not seen, I think I would have remembered if I'd seen a COVID-19 and water birth yes, paper. I, I mean, there so. will be opinion pieces, but I don't, I haven't read any any data on, on women with COVID-19 giving birth underwater. Um, okay. I think I'm going to kick for touch on the general question of water births. If we start on that, we'll have a, <laughs> a tremendous battle and you might end up not liking me quite so much. We- so. <laughs> Well, we might be having a water birth session a little further down the series. So, Heather, we might be able to answer that. Maybe Jim will opt out of that one. (laughs) Okay, and then we've got, um, let me see, Margaret Rogan. Hi, Margaret. Um, What are your thoughts about women service users who decline COVID tests on admission to maternity services now that's oh, that, in the context uh, most women in most units are being offered that test yes that is a a very good question and uh, and thank you for asking that margaret and i i have a view a very strong opinion they jolly well should have that test and i i have seen a number of patients who have declined the test uh, and I'm afraid I've been quite tough. I go to see them and I say, Do you, we're not doing this test for your good. We're doing it you, for the good of the people who are going to be caring for you through your pregnancy or cesarean or whatever. We're not asking much of you. 
But if you are COVID positive, we need to know about it to make a difference to other people. And some of the people are people like me who are 66 years old. And it's and it's a risk to us. Um, and I think a lot of patients, uh, I mean, when I say that to people, they usually say, oh, goodness me, I didn't realize. I, sorry, I hadn't really understood. Yes, I'll have the test. Uh, and that's fine. Because I think most people, the same with wearing masks, people sometimes don't quite understand that we're doing things an awful lot of what we're doing in covid is to protect other people and people are good most people i mean the vast majority of people are good solid citizens who want to help and when it's explained to them that we're doing a swab on them because that will make a difference to the people who care for them and the contact tracing with them and and it will save it will undoubtedly save the lives of hospital staff nhs staff usually they uh, agree but it is important i think it, there's a real message for people in the audience here who are midwives who are perhaps going up to someone and saying hello good morning you're having your cesarean section today we're just admitting you uh would you like what you know i want to take a covid swab from you but it's voluntary um yes it is voluntary of course we're not going to take a swab from anyone if they refuse that we can't do anything without refusal but we do need to explain that yes it's voluntary but you jolly well should have it <laughs> is that fair I think that's fair. That's very clear. It's very clear. And I think I think that is actually te treating our clients and our users as adults and actually making sure they understand why we're doing things, which should should be really guiding all the things we do, because it, often women will if they don't know why we're doing something, why should they say yes or no? If they understand, they're much more likely to. So that's great. Okay, that's fantastic. We've got uh, Judy Evans, who's saying the reality is women are in and out swiftly. Women have been compliant and have been reassured using IT, i.e. FaceTime. So actually a smooth service offered. Interesting to see data post-COVID. So that's a comment more than a question, I think. Um, ba, 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 ba. If you're interested, there is some research going on. I don't know uh, if anyone's interested. Lots of people have been asking what is going to be the effect of all the various changes that we made. So things like uh, less antenatal clinics face-to-face -face and more done remotely, less fewer people seen in the in the uh, antenatal baby care unit for worries about reduced movements instead of managing at home, uh, all sorts of things like that, perhaps fewer ultrasound scans, and we can, uh, you know, and changes in partners. There's lots and lots of changes. And there is a great, and almost everybody who is a researcher is thinking, how can we study this? And the government has just awarded half a million pounds, quite a lot of money, to, to Professor Sue Down who many of you will know, she's mm. the professor of midwifery at Preston, and she is wonderful and brilliant and uh, and absolutely excellent. And she has got that grant, and her project over the next six months or so is to study these matters. So uh, I think a lot of us will be wanting to help her uh, mm. if you know if she asks you for data and that sort of thing. I, you know, I would say yes, please, Sue. Whatever you want, I'll send you what you need. Uh, and and I'm encouraging people in the Nottingham to help her and I'm looking forward very much to the results of her research yeah fantastic that's good it's great news actually great news yeah okay 
No, I don't. I don't think there's. Oh, hang on, I'm just checking if. And the reason why my eyes are going elsewhere because I have two screens, audience. So I'm very fortunate, and all the questions come on another screen. So I'm just checking. Oh, uh, Tara Pauly says, from the research and learning so far, what do you think the priorities should be for surge planning over the winter, taking into account the research available? Oh, Tara, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> it really, it, okay. it, you know, I mean, honestly, I, you've listened to the BBC and the ITV <laughs> and Channel 4 arguing this one over Trump and everybody, you know, that really is, I mean, it's not a job for Boris, it's a job for the, the uh, Boris's advisory group, and I don't envy them, uh, whatever they do, people will say is wrong, they would, you know, they were locking down too much or locking down too little. There's an enormous amount to be said on both sides. And I'm a mere obstetrician. And, and, <laughs> and, and I, I just I haven't, I, I mean, I suppose I'm slightly on the, on the not being too strong on the doctor, you know, on the lockdown. I've, you know, I think we, we have to take a little bit of risk, but, but uh, that's just my opinion. There's no evidence on that. Mm. It's it's just an opinion, and your opinion, if it's different, is just as valid as mine. So sorry, Tara. I'm going to kick that one for <laughs> I guess being prepared for the being unprepared. I guess. Yes. Isn't it? Being we've, we've we've kind of got got uh, got used to it. Mm. Okay, I've got I have got a last question. Okay. From the audience, this is Sarah S. S. Bagona. As Edge Bona, sorry, Sarah, I'm terrible on pronunciation. Those women who generally face disparities during pregnancy are worse off from COVID. What are your thoughts on mitigating the risk or the yes, risks? There is a real, there is a real problem there. I, again, I'm not sure that I have the answer, but COVID is a disease which is uh, having an effect and a not good effect on the socioeconomic disparities. It's it's very easy to lock down if you're a nice, if you're a rich white guy like me living in a big house in the country. It's not so much fun if you're a single parent in the tower block in London, um, and and all sorts of other things are are um, disproportionately affecting the socio-economic more deprived groups. Um, so yes, I see. The problem is there, and it's very clear. Actually, you can see it in the data in the UCOS study. Uh, black and mm. minority ethnic groups were disproportionately affected. Um, the the answer. Well, I do have I do have an answer. I have a bit of an answer. We Black Lives Matter has taught us. So actually, I'm going to speak for myself. It's taught me a lot about the unconscious racism that is going on in society. It's it's and I th and I think I can speak for quite a lot of white males like me. I've been quite shocked at at, at how I hadn't quite realised how unconsciously racist some of my attitudes and behaviours were, mm. and I don't think I'm alone. And and one of the racist ways in which we can respond to uh, the excess of black and minority ethnic groups having severe COVID is to say, ah, they've got a genetic disposition to COVID. Black skin makes you susceptible to COVID. 
And I'm sorry to say that is racist. It is absolutely wrong. There is no evidence whatsoever to support that. And it's a, it, and to argue in that sort of way is very much the same as saying black people have smaller brains and things like that. It's just wrong. And, and, and we must get away from that. The reason that black and minority ethnic people and poor people and other groups of people have worse COVID is that they are socially deprived. They're living in closer proximity with their neighbours. They're working in, in manual jobs which they can't get out of. Um, those sorts of things. It's the, it's the environmental factors that are causing the differences. It's not a racial thing. There isn't a gene for COVID susceptibility. And if, I mean, I suppose it's possible, there might be one, but trust me, it will not be, it won't be a gene for which the marker is black skin. That's just nonsense. Mm. And we need to get past all that uh, and deal with the socioeconomic problems that everybody has, uh, regardless of racial group. And I think that's a fantastic point to, to close on, really. Um, though I, would, I did have a question about how we'd, on earth we'd all deal with the amount of data and information, but I suspect the answer is going to be that ripe tomato. <laughs> it is, is ripe tomato. And, 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 and yes, if, if I can have a last word, uh, do you can, of course. It, it's, uh, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. I've got a navigation page and, and, and all sorts of bits and bobs about COVID and also a few things that'll make you laugh about uh, the cocktails I've been drinking during lockdown and, and stuff like that. But I want to end. I'm going to start. Uh, I've got two main databases on ripe tomato. The one I've told you about, which is all the scientific papers. And I've also been keeping a record of all the newspaper reports of pregnant women with COVID. And there's 240 of those. Um, and they make interesting reading if, if anyone's interested. Of course, they're biased, uh, but, but uh, interesting reading. You see a lot about the human, the human cost of this disease. This is COVID in pregnancy. But I am just starting, uh, or I'm hoping to start in the next couple of days, a, a database of primary studies on the effect of lockdown. And the four papers that Sue has circulated to you are the four that so far I found about that. So these are papers which are having a look at what the effect of the, you know, of the surge was on people who didn't get COVID. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it, it's the effect of the surge and the lockdown and all the behavioral changes. Now those four papers are very much preliminary research. There's a paper from St. George's which showed an increase in stillbirth, but small numbers, we can't be sure that's true. There's two papers, one from Ireland, one from Denmark, showing a reduction in very premature babies. Mm. Difficult to tell if that's true, might be chance. And then there's a wonderful paper from Nepal uh, in The Lancet, which showed uh, that during the lockdown in Nepal, um, about half as many people went into hospital to have their babies. And that was very clearly associated with an increased risk of stillbirth and neonatal death. And although that's still preliminary data, I think that's highly plausible. Um, mm. Although I'm, I'm pro having your baby at home in England, I don't think it's quite such a, such a safe thing to do to have it in Nepal. Uh, and, and I think that, that people are, in developing countries, I think people probably are paying quite a high price, uh, you know, in bad pregnancy outcomes from the effect of the lockdown as well as the mm. direct effect of the, of the COVID. But there will be a lot of research coming out over this next few months and it's all going to be on ripe-tomato.org.
Right. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Jim. I think the phrase I was looking for as you were talking about Nepal uh, and, and cases there is something that Fran said this morning, which was too much too soon or too little too late, depending on where in the world you are. So that summed it up beautifully. And thank you. You've been a delight. And I can't believe an hour's just sped past. Thank you to everybody for some fantastic questions. And thank you to Jim for such fantastic answers, actually. That was really super. Now, there's, there's still questions coming in that we'll try and answer them. Um, but otherwise, do have a look at the links and resources, read the articles and get your app up on your phone if you can. Um, and do come back next week, same place, same, same time. We've got, because it's Baby Loss Awareness Week, we'll be talking with Claire Beasley, who's an award-winning bereavement midwife, um, and someone else who will be confirmed later. Um, also, the Scottish Festival, which is on the 25th of November. Book now. The, pro the programme will be available tomorrow for you. In the meantime, stay safe. Um, look after yourselves and look after your loved ones and we'll see you next week thanks for tuning in bye stay safe thank you for joining us for the maternity and midwifery hour this podcast has been made possible by the team at maternity and midwifery forum and our cpd partners matflix you can sign up at matflix.co.uk This episode was edited and produced by Catherine Stewart of the Narrowcast Media Group.